For February 21st, 2011, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 138, the oft-overlooked number one variety. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, California, a week away from being the most exciting place in the world. Uh, I am your host, Matthew Rather, and it is seven days from Oscar night uh, here on the Overthinking and Podcast. We haven't decided what we're going to do for uh, for Oscar night. I, I assume everyone is going to watch the awards. We could live. We're going to have some kind of live tweeting or live blogging kind of thing going on. I, I have no fear. I'm not exactly sure what, but we'll do it. Matt, uh, you could crash it. Yeah, I'm going to show up at a talk and just like, you know, sweet talk your way past the bouncer. Yeah, we can record the podcast on uh, on the Skype app on my iPhone. You can you can call in and we'll uh, we'll I'll interview people on the red carpet (laughs) using via (laughs) Skype um, with the with the thing. No, that's harder than it looks. We tried doing that at at New York Comic Con and we and we had like uh, cell phone video cameras or those um, those flip. I think I had a flip video camera. Did you uh, customize it with your own design? It was like MW. No, it would have been flip. It would have been OTI or something like that. It would have been a picture of the of a logo of Otis, the uh, thought bubble mascot of ours. Um, but no, uh, no, it was just a it was a plain vanilla, you know, stock flip camera. But it's hard to do, you know. And like, what do you do? Hi, I'm from Overthinking It. I'd like to interview you. That actually would be pretty funny. Um, it actually might be funny just to go very meta and uh, do a little mini documentary about how we're trying to get interviews, uh, you know, on <laughs> <laughs> on the red carpet, and it becomes a um, oh, you know, it becomes a sort of searching for. It becomes kind of Roger and me, I guess. I was uh, thinking more like it's, it'd be exactly like Exit to the Gift Shop. Yeah, you know, I haven't se- I haven't seen that, but apparently Banksy is in town, is in L.A. for um, for the Oscars. Though there's this controversy uh, as to whether he can uh, he can accept wearing a disguise or not, and it's all. I mean, it's it's a uh, great deal of of silliness, uh, hogwash, and codswallop. But um, the uh, you know, but it's it's going on, and so apparently he's been he well not apparently uh, we know that he has been making art around the city, uh, which is to say vandalizing walls with his with his stuff. <laughs> um, and it's fight the power, fight the power, Matt, fight the powers that be. <laughs> and certain, I'm fighting the power of sanctimonious street art. Uh, the um, you know, there was a uh, it's funny there was a uh, kind of a th- uh, thing that he did. Of a child soldier pointing a, a machine gun at a uh, um, at a no parking sign on a wall uh, outside an Urban Outfitters, and there was this whole drama as to whether Urban Outfitters was going to take take it down. And like this, you know, of course, like fifty Facebook campaigns sprouted up immediately. Save the Westwood, California. Um, you know, the uh, save the the Banksy. Save this important piece of contemporary art, and. Uh, Right in. Urban Outfitters is going to take it down. And, of course, Urban Outfitters put out a thing that's like, look, we love Banksy. We've been selling that damn book in our store. Uh, you know, it's been a big seller for us, Banksy. A big commercial opportunity for Urban Outfitters. It's, it's the bad landlord. It's the property management company that wants to uh, take the thing down. So, you know, then overnight, like mushrooms uh, in a field of turds, a uh, a whole bunch of Facebook campaigns sprouted up you know stop the property management company anyway long story short too late the um uh the artwork was vandalized by uh someone who like threw a can of gray paint over it and uh tagged it uh with spray paint with the letters mbw which happened to be my initials which Mm. is an utter coincidence i assure you um Anyway, uh, this, so you know, hey, it's been a been a pretty exciting week in Los Angeles. By, by the way, uh, just to point out, one of those turds, you know, in a, one of those mushrooms sprouting from a turd that you so derisively dismissed. One of those uh, mushrooms did take down Hosni Mubarak. So, power to, power to the people and stuff. Gosh, <laughs> Hosni Mubarak done in by a mushroom, <laughs> growing on a turd. 
growing on a turd. <laughs> Much like this podcast so far. <laughs> and you had such high hopes after someone said in the comment threads last week, best episode yet. Thanks for that. That makes us feel Best good. episode ever. Let's try, to, uh, let's try to outdo ourselves this week. All right. No, let's, let's not. Seriously. Come on. Let's quit while we were on top. <laughs> let's just, let's internet phone this one in. <laughs> You know, let's, let's internet we're literally Skyping. We're Skyping it in. Yeah, we're we literally Skyping, Skyping this one in. Um, all right. We need a question of the week. Uh, Oscars next week. We we had an attempt at the uh, uh, at um, an Oscar show. And I think we got to like half a category, uh, but mm-hmm. got, got derailed by some stupid BS the way the way we usually do. Uh, that's what you pay your zero dollars for on this podcast. And honestly, I um. I I think that the most helpful iTunes comment that we have, and I voted this comment helpful uh, with my personal iTunes account, is the one who said, look, I tried, guys, but uh, it was like a three-star review. I tried, guys, but your Harry Potter uh, podcast, <laughs> you spent 45 minutes, 50 minutes talking about how none of you had seen most of the movies <laughs> or read the read certain of the books. And it was, um, you know, and I think the complaint was that, like, A, we were too digressive and B, we were too self-involved. Uh, and on both counts, I plead guilty as charged. You know, that's uh, that's what it is. Anyway, so um, but thank you uh, for that review. And thank you to everyone who's left a rating for this show on iTunes. We made it back into the top one, the hot. 120. Woohoo! We did. We were the um we were in the Hot 120 uh uh film and television podcasts. Yep. Uh, and I think that's good, right? Like because if you go to iTunes and then click the podcast tab and then click the film and television Wait, wait, sections. wait. So first you double click the icon on your desktop <laughs> to open your your uh iTunes, right? And then you <laughs> click on Wait, so wait. What do you click? Do, you have, do I have to push tab? I've got a three-button mouse. Look, we need to give – I think we need to make a podcast dedicated to very specific directions on how to navigate popular websites. I, I think that would be- Pete, what I meant is that you open a can of tab. Oh, yeah, okay. The, you know, you get a ca- can of tab, set it on your desktop, your actual desktop, not your computer desktop, you know, not, not to confuse the two things. Yeah. Um, no, my my point is that I mean the exposure the exposure is very good because with only six or seven clicks from the home screen of iTunes, <laughs> <laughs> you can be exposed to the Overthinking It podcast rather than actually knowing the name and searching for it. So you know it is a vast improvement, and it uh, is it is it is it actually like getting on that list. And if we rise at all in the list, it'll be thanks to the listeners who go in and just uh, just rate the podcast. Just put you know and hey, if you rate it five stars uh who you're gonna hurt right but wait wait wait, wait. well if generations of future on, listeners if we get higher up on this list of top 120 film and television podcasts and people start to download it then they're gonna expect us to actually talk about film and television what <laughs> Why? Are gonna do? I, you're being a little bit too on the nose i think i think you guys are thinking a lot like I, i'm hearing this and i'm like matt are you sure you don't work in corporate america because you're doing a great job of faint praise <laughs> you know, like it's, it's a real win for us you know, this is a real. This is the team is really coming together, and we're really, and it's really, it's it's about access. You know, it's like three levels in, <laughs> click, click, click. You know, it's about clicking, really. And I and I'm envisioning like a PowerPoint presentation with a screenshot of us in like the 118th slot, and like a big box around it, like pointing to it that animates. I think it'll be. Uh, I mean, I'm psyched. I'm jazzed that we're on that list. I'm also a little bit sick, so I apologize for my hoarse voice. I joked with my friends that uh, tonight the Overthinking it podcast will have special guest Kathleen Turner. Um, <laughs> uh, do you mind if I make myself more comfortable? Fantastic, <laughs> Catherine. I've been watching her in Californication in the last in the last couple seasons. Anyway, she's awesome. She's a really great actor. Speaking of I film like and television, <laughs> yeah. oh right, yeah. No, we're on the we're on the list. So thank you to everyone who's rated us. Uh, you don't have to leave a long text comment. All you have to do is click on the number of stars. Uh, would you do that this week for us? Could you do that for us? We haven't asked you for money in a while um, because we haven't done a listener feedback show in a while. But I don't want your money right now. What I want you to do is go to iTunes and uh, and click uh, to rate us. And, you know, we we may rise in the list um, and there will be and rewards. still I rise. The special guest Maya Angelou on the podcast. <laughs> what other grand names? of American culture will all be impersonating with flawless accuracy during this podcast. <laughs> you be the judge. 
Wait, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> right. Uh, Pete will do more impressions for you. All right. We got it. We got to launch yes. into this. So we, we got through, uh, we got through like half a category for the very reason that, that here we are, you know, 10 minutes into our recording of this podcast. Get off my plane. Get off, get off my plane. We no. still haven't gotten to the introductory <laughs> question. Wait, Harrison Ford is a grand dame of American cinema? Nice. Uh, I tell him he isn't. I wouldn't tell him he isn't. He's very crotchety these days. He'd be, very, he'd be crotchety all over you. And he's in that Cowboys and Aliens movie. So, uh, as a cowboy he, or as an alien? Oh, uh, spoiler. Don't tell me. Don't tell me. But don't spoil okay. it. He plays, yeah, yeah. I know it's the same. Cowboys are aliens because they're in land that was formerly owned by Mexico. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, sorry, a little, a, little bit too, a, little too a, notes. <laughs> yeah, in in a way, Pete, we're all aliens, aren't we? All in a way, in a way, in a way. People yes. they come together, people they fall apart, but nothing can stop us now because we're all made of stars. That was a dead on impersonation, dead on. <laughs> let's uh, let's do let's do the question. Um, yes. Question. Write in a uh, write in a best picture pick, something that's not on the list. So these movies these movies are off the table. Black Swan, The Fighter, Inception, The Kids Are All Right, The King's Speech, 127 Hours, The Social Network, Toy Story Three, True Grit, and uh, Winter's Bone. Those are off the list. Uh, also, the men who scare, who stare at goats. I got well actually pretty hard in the uh, in the comment threads uh, <laughs> of our la- of uh, on the show notes for the last episode, uh, where where I was being quite a douche uh, about men who stare at goats. I was mistaken about the title. The title is The Men Who Stare at Goats. I stand corrected. Uh, Overthinkingit.com is a safe space for nitpicking. Uh, Never feel bad about well-actuallying someone on the podcast. Um, All right, Pete, write in a candidate that is not one of the uh, Best Picture nominees. Cool. I'm going to actually, I'm going to use an appeal to authority on this one because I'm going to cite my favorite review of the year, which will then identify my favorite Dark Horse candidate. So I'm going to read an excerpt from my favorite review of the year, which is uh, from the reviews from someone with questionable sensibilities on the apiary.org. Uh, actually written by a friend of mine, you know, full disclosure. But uh, it, it's, a, it's a pretty dead-on uh, capturing of a, of a cultural moment, a, a, a touchstone of the zeitgeist, if you will. <clears throat> it's all in there. An elaborate cast of characters easily identified by telltale stereotypes. Bodily function humor of the number two and oft-overlooked number one variety. Drug references. (laughs) (laughs) Oft-overlooked number one variety. Bravo. And extremely specific pop culture references, including Almost Famous, Titanic, and The Fugitive, just to name a few. See this film with your loved ones, and you'll hear every member of the family laughing simultaneously the whole time. The acting in this film can't be overlooked. Owen Wilson, who's thankfully no longer on Suicide Watch, truly owns the iconic role. Of Marmaduke. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then it goes into detail about, like, Owen Wilson, like, trying to kill himself. Because that's what he, he did that in 2010. You know, oh, crazy. Oh, so many things happened during the year. Yeah, where are they now? So, yeah, Owen Wilson had some mental health issues and uh, tried to kill himself and then made Marmaduke, which is how he uh, apparently, you know, got back on the road to recovery. So, I mean, I, I can joke and say Marmaduke. And, um, I will say I'll, I'll give another it, joke. It, Pete, Pete, it is a film that saved a man's life. You know, not to be not to be slighted. No, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I feel like for me, that's sort of like the the culture of the day really seems wrapped up in the existence of Marmaduke. Uh, but I, I will say I'll give another kind of dark horse candidate, um, and I'm going to say the PAX 2010 gameplay trailer for Duke Nukem Forever. Ooh. It's going to be the movie of the year because oh, it is yes. more anticipated than Dr. Zhivago, more unlikely than Inception, <laughs> and uh, more full of Colin Firth for some reason than The King's Speech. No, it doesn't have Colin Firth in it. Um, but I, I mean, in terms of moments where the culture interacted, you know, this is, this is an, an example of how the, the sort of difference between evaluating a work of art through at least the sort of pretense of it existing as, an, as a work in itself versus like looking at literature as an arm of society, right? And these things are often conflated where it's like uh, the, bo- the good movies, the good books are the ones that have an influence on people. They're the ones that make a difference. I, I, I often rail against this on, on my writings and on the podcast uh, because the way that differences are made is like very unlikely and complex and doesn't really abide by our sort of high cultural, low, low culture divide. So like perhaps – 
one of the movies of the year that made the biggest difference to people in their, in their perception of the world. Might be the Duke Nukem Forever gameplay trailer from PAX. Although the one that came out in January of 2011 after the Oscar bait deadline was probably more of a transformation. Um, and to finally actually pick something useful, actually pick something useful, I'm going to say not necessarily for best picture, but for best animated film, Despicable Me really deserved to be in there. I really like Despicable Me. I know there's only three nominees, but uh, Despicable Me was a really solid movie that was really well performed and really enjoyed it. I mean, I guess I didn't see the other animated movies, so I can't necessarily say it was better or worse, but it was a dark horse that deserved a little bit more recognition than it got, I think. Um, Perhaps because it's not as established. Although I do hear How to Train Your Dragon is awesome. Um, so I don't want to say that it's necessarily bad. But Despicable Me with Steve Carell was a pretty solid movie. Definitely. Excellent. Thank you very much, Pete. You, you know, you didn't name one which I expected you to name, but I'm, I'm going to wait uh, to see if Mark names it before I bring it up myself. Uh, okay. Mark Lee, write in a candidate. Uh, I'm not going to suggest The Expendables either as a joke <laughs> or as a serious Suggestion. So, if that's what you were thinking, Matt, that's not what my I'm. I'm you're you're just going to cast them aside. You're just going to like abandon them because they're of no use to you anymore. Uh, and then <laughs> as if gonna... they were expendable. Hmm. Exactly. Uh, that's actually a great those? moment. I almost, I'd actually forgotten about that. That's crazy. Anyway, continue, Mark. <laughs> okay, uh, my write-in pick for Best Picture 2010. It should come as no surprise. It's Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Um, mm. You know, which has tons of nerd cred with our crowd, for example. But here's why. And I think the last time we talked about Best Picture, uh, the category, the award for Best Picture, we talked about sort of advancing the art of filmmaking, really moving it forward. And to be fair, like our, you know, our crowd will naturally gravitate to the more fantastical types of movies. And it's like, uh, well, at least I would gravitate to Avatar as, you know, sort of advancing the art of filmmaking and having a transcendent film experience that takes the audience to a different type of place than something that's just more sort of run-in-the-middle drama type of thing that we're more accustomed to. Anyway, but the reason why I am, uh, I'm, you know, giving these props for Scott Pilgrim as sort of advancing the art of filmmaking is because of its heavy use of video game tropes and video game culture to tell its story and to connect with its audience. And you can say that films like, Inception, for example, you know, with its various level type of thing, is very much you know using the you know tropes of video games and yeah. all sorts of other movies. You know, I have clearly been influenced by video game aesthetics over the years, but none of them quite have put video game culture to the forefront yeah. in the same way that Scott Pilgrim vs. Uh, yeah. the World has. So this is basically what I'm saying is like, sure, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, it's not a perfect movie. It, it, it you know it had its problems and obviously did you know not so well at the box office, but uh, it's a uh, it's clear uh, to me like this is the future. You know, this, people look back and say Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Um, they're, they're sort of before that era and then after that era. You know, there's a great movie that you can – well, it's not a great movie, but it's a good movie. It's pretty long, um, and they actually uh, let you push the uh, – I think it's the square button a lot while you're watching it, which I think was called Final Fantasy X. <laughs> uh, and so, and it's like and great you know, CGI and the characters. are They're annoying, but like it really feels like a video game. Like, it almost feels like you're playing a video game when you play that game. And that was a couple of years ago. So, like, I mean, I see what you're talking about, but I think that there's definitely, definitely precedent. Definitely. Um, oh, well, excuse me. Okay. I'll just go, well, actually, on my own podcast. Hey, it's the 25th anniversary of The Legend of Zelda, by the way, which is exciting. I thought someone was. Maybe we can come back to that after you give your answer, because I always love talking about The Legend of Zelda. Oh, yes. Yeah, but by the way, we should post, figure out which episode number this is and post it in the show notes. But this is one amazing podcast episode where Pete, like, gives his whole rant about Legend of Zelda and how bizarre it is. But this kid is, like, going around stabbing things. Yeah, I won't. I won't add any. Yeah, you know, one, one touch, one hit, and you're dead. I think is what it's called. Yeah, I, I won't add it again. But I will say that it did occur to me how how awful it is that at the beginning of the game, this little boy walks into a, 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 a cave in the side of the wall of the of the cliffside in a place that's like infested with monsters. And there's this older man there. And he sees this child come up. And he goes, "Hey, it's dangerous to go alone." Oh, oh, oh great. Oh, you're gonna come. With, okay. Take this. He gives him a knife. Oh, okay. I'm kind of hoping that you might want to come with me since I'm a child and you're an adult with magical items in your possession that could potentially help. The old lady and the old man in Legend of Zelda are some of the most useless – well, not useless. They're so lazy. They never leave the house. And like Link is like a freaking child. So anyway, I won't go into that rant again because the one that I gave before kind of kind of marks the territory. <laughs> yeah. right like, Someone's got to find the Triforce of Child Protective Services. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, 
Wow, that joke brought to you by whatever I'm drinking from Trader Joe's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, okay, so... I hope it's Virgil's root beer. <laughs> yeah. It's delicious. No, it's, right it's, in the show notes if you like Virgil's root beer. <laughs> it's organic, uh, it's organic grapefruit juice. No, just kidding. It's not. It's booze. So, um, yeah, I think Scott Pilgrim is an interesting, an interesting choice because there's nothing written that says, you know, films have to be straitjacketed by this kind of arbitrary formalism that they have this this particular set of rules that that they've observed you know the, the idea being that the that the you know the camera is not really there or um uh you know i don't know that that the story is kind of staged theatrically and you just happen to you just happen to kind of see it voyeuristically mm. uh now there are of course there are a lot of directors that that uh, subvert those con- conventions and and kind of bend them in various ways. But I mean, I think a movie like um, uh, 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 Crank Two, High Volt, High Voltage, <laughs> awesome, <laughs> such a you good know. movie, such a good movie. Wait, was that 2010? No, it was. It wasn't. That's oh, not my. That's okay. not my pick. Because that but would be best picture. You see, there's that another would... movie though. The Crank. You know, franchise is another one where like words are flashing up on the screen, and you know, there's there's a use of um, there's a use of uh, of what like freeze frames and kind of voiceovers, and, yeah. you know, and the the uh, the the status of the film as kind of uh, as object, you know what I mean, as artifact, as made thing, um, right? Is uh, is foregrounded, um, not to be all. Uh, all jerky and you know meta and uh, uh, film schooly, but to actually entertain you, you know what I mean? To to mm-hmm. to uh, to do something valuable, which is show you a good time uh, in a movie. Yep. So I, Scott Pilgrim, I think, acknowledges that there are other ways that we um, interact with screens now, and that you can't, and that you know screen narrative can't be entirely innocent of those anymore and i think that's mm-hmm. um that's very cool now i thought that that uh surely pete and if not pete then mark was going to uh bring up a movie and it's not my pick and i actually didn't see it but um but i saw the the first film in this uh trilogy um yeah. in this original trilogy and i was the twilight you're talking about twilight eclipse yes, absolutely <laughs> yeah i'm on uh, i'm on i'm on actually uh i'm on team um Shoot, I should have looked up a minor character in Twilight before I said that because I don't know any. Yeah. But I want to be like, I'm on team Mr. Ferguson. I'm on, I'm, on, I'm on team Academy Award nominee Anna Kendrick, who, yeah. you know. Continue. I'm on team Charlie Swan. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, right, I thought that someone was going to call out Jackass 3D. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I did say um, on to you on the back channel, like that is the correct answer, right? Like Jackass 3D. If you want to sort of think outside the box, uh, I think is like the biggest. I mean, I think Jackass 3D is as good as Avatar in terms of exploring what 3D can do, um, because I think it also it's sort of like the Joe Schmo show of 3D movies. Because it's like once I saw Jackass 3D, I felt like I didn't see a 3D movie again ever. It's like okay, I get it. Like this is what you can do, uh, and it was pretty much the funniest thing uh, many of the people I was seeing it with had ever seen ever. Uh, and so I do think the Jackass 3D is probably the most distinguished. And we've gotten into a great – the reason I didn't bring it up to start out is we've gotten into a lot of detail on it. We had a whole podcast on Jackass 3D. Yeah, we, and if you haven't seen it and you can handle the beauty of the male form in all of its glory <laughs> with its – if some of that glory especially is tied to a model helicopter, then you want to see Jackass 3D. Um, because I, I think it is better than uh, the other Jackass movies. Um, by virtue of having an additional dimension. Actually, it's four dimensions. Um, up to ten dimensions, including to, uh, according to quantum physicists. It's possible that there's kind of uh, a crazy... There are dimensions that are so small that they aren't visible to the naked eye, but Steve-O can still tie his balls to them. So... <laughs> Oh God! Sorry, I make a lot of quantum physics Maybe jokes in 2010 and 2011. Tra- Traders Joe's wine all over myself. Um, no, but here's my, my real answer. <laughs> My answer is a is a perfectly serviceable workmanlike enjoyable action movie which um uh which featured decent clever writing you know some plots and twists and and uh back and forth and crossings and double crossings and and things like this uh featured a solid you know sort of 16 act structure the way these movies are all going on so long these days um 
featured some great performances and great performances doing a very hard thing, uh, mm. like uh, which will become clear. You know, doing a difficult job, and um, had the misfortune to be released uh, the same weekend as the uh, remake of the Karate Kid. Um, and I'm talking about a little film called The A Team. And that, uh, nice. that, that was, uh, that was my, I don't know. I saw that movie and I enjoyed it. I thought it was a perfectly serviceable, fun action movie and, and serviceable. I don't mean as a, a put down. I mean, really a fun action movie. So it was certainly better than live free or die hard. You know, it was, certainly- <laughs> that's really the bar that you want to jump over every time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, we'll talk about maybe about the bar that we want to jump over. Um, it was certainly better than better written than the expendables i mean i i don't know i i guess just as it, did, cinema. it didn't play mississippi queen as much <laughs> yeah <laughs> just as pure cinema i guess the expendables is spe- speaking of you know kind of the homoerotic uh homosocial desire for the you know kinetic glory of the male form uh, <laughs> the Expendables. I mean, I don't think you have to. I don't think you have to grant that. I think A Team is better than the Expendables. A Team is better than the Expendables. Yeah. No. Well. Right. Better written anyway. Um, no. I'm not, uh, my point is, I'm not sure it's better as a movie in the end when you consider all the things. Mm-hmm. I mean, a movie isn't just a script, but you know. Anyway, the A Team. Uh, I love it when a plan comes together, but apparently American it's, audiences yeah. did not love it when that plan came together. Finally, it is kind of funny how, like, at this point, like n- calling things Best Picture nominees like just seems sort of like not a very high bar to jump over at all. And like, I think this one should be the best. I think this one should be the best. Like, clearly, the A Team shouldn't be Best Picture. Right? Clearly, Marmaduke shouldn't be Best Picture. Clearly, you know, uh, Despicable Me shouldn't be Best Picture. But it's like, I guess we have a little bit of fatigue. We have a little bit of kind of praise fatigue, and, and we're looking. Well, what about this thing? What about that thing? Uh, you know, isn't this great? Isn't that great? Like I'm picking the moments. I don't know. I have a saying um, which I use sometimes, which I think I, uh, I sort of speaks to my own history as a Yankee fan living in Boston, um, which is that. And I think we might have I might have mentioned this like years ago, which is uh, superiority is a poor substitute for victory. Yep. Uh, and this is this is a, a saying I was because like people want to think of their teams as the best, but what they really want to do is remember the times that the team won and and sort of feel fulfilled and feel kind of uh, you know supported by these moments of victory that feel foundational and feel like they stand for something, right? So it doesn't really matter that like you know the Tigers don't really win a lot. I mean, I guess that's probably poor to say because they won more recently. But like you know, if you have a sports franchise that doesn't win a lot of games. Um, or like doesn't win a lot of championships, you can think back to its glory days, and that still means something. And there's a lot of talk about uh, kind of which one was the best ever, which always seems a little bit kind of like thrown together and not doesn't feel relevant to me. Like you're asking the right questions, and I think that that when we're talking about the Oscars, I think what we're talking about is that I don't not I don't really care which movie is the best. I want to care like which movie is like fullest of win, right? Like which which movie won like won like the experience of watching the movie was a victory or like the existence of the movie is a victory and that for me is more meaningful in terms of praising movies and their interactions with us than determining which one is the best by some sort of exterior um, uh, you know qualifications and you know which is always a little bit dodgy and I do love analyzing things and breaking them down and calling them good or bad and I don't want to say I'm not going to do those things but I'm more excited by a sense of victory than I am for a sense of like sort of smug self satisfaction. If that makes sense. Sure. I, you yeah. know, I think that, there, that also there's something going on here that, that is behind the founding impulse of overthinking it or behind the kind of ethos of overthinking it, which is that you know, there are a lot of kinds of goodness in movies. You know what I mean? There are, mm-hmm. like, there are a lot of things in that can be In the good. world, yeah. Yeah, well, in the mm-hmm. world. I mean, there are a lot of kinds yeah. of goodness in the world. And uh, you know, maybe it's the kind of anti-authoritarian streak that, that I have. But whenever someone holds something up as the best, I always kind of want to say, yeah, but what about this? What about this? What about this? I mean, you know, that, that is, I, you know, the Oscars honor a certain kind of goodness that seems less and less relevant to anything as time goes on, um, compared with the full of winness of jackass three D. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. The one, the example I always think of when, when I think of 
sort of bestness and and defying bestness is the song Lose Yourself from the Eminem movie Eight Mile, right? Which is like a big deal and it's a big hit and people like to sing it. Uh, and people talked about it. I think it, it won a lot of recognition as being like a really great song, one of the best songs, yada, yada, yada. But like it isn't even the best song on that album, right? Like if you look at the track listing of uh, the um, – the the I mean the was it the eight mile soundtrack or the other album that comes out like there are better tracks that are more interesting. Um, I mean I'm a big fan. Actually I'm looking at it now. I might have to correct myself because I think Lose Yourself appears on multiple albums and there's one on which it appears in the same uh, recording I believe as cleaning up cleaning out my closet, which I think of as a really much better song. Yeah, it's a far superior um, song, right? Yeah, 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 but it's not going to have the same kind of widespread appeal that lose yourself is because it's not going to be as accessible and and it's sort of like okay this thing is the best with a given definition of the best but let's think about the things that are farther out on the risk curve let's think about things that work differently like that isn't even the best of its kind right you know like then that's kind of an important distinction um to make so it's like uh i guess despicable me you could say that's the best movie like well it's not even the best animated movie of the year you know and it's like oh okay i guess not uh, but I wanted it to be the best. Oh, I gotcha, I gotcha, and so on and so forth. Yep. All right. Well, let's uh, let's you know let's push on. We can do we can do an Oscar show. But Pete, you're back from a uh, you're back from a comedy festival. And yes, I that am- is why I'm a little weather. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Uh, crazy ragers at the comedy festival. <laughs> Uh, you think never drink with comics because they are they are angry people and they drink to fix their feelings. So. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, Right. Uh, Pete, I'm, I'm curious. You can, you know, omit the, you know, personally identifiable details if you want to, though no need to omit them if you care to share them. Uh, but I'm curious a little bit about comedy festivals, like how you go with your group, you know, what goes on and what, kind of what the culture of the comedy festival is like and what, what's going on uh, right, during the comedy right. festival, other than apparently a lot of drinking. And, you know, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, you know, all manner of satisfying promiscuity for all involved. <laughs> Fair but, enough. Uh, oh, don't forget the homosociality and what did you call it? The uh, admiration of the male form. The, admir- <laughs> the admiration. There's a lot of that. Other <laughs> No, uh, so so I went to the North Carolina Comedy Arts Festival this weekend, uh, which was awesome, and it keeps getting more awesome with every passing year. Did you go as a, uh, Did you go as a performer or as a uh, spectator? I went as a performer, and and one of the first things to think of is that there are different kinds. There are obviously different kinds of comedy festivals, right? There's ones where you go to see big fancy stand-ups. There's ones where you go to see sort of like alternative acts. There are ones where most of the people who go are participants, right? So it's almost like you're you're sharing this experience it's almost like a tournament right for like 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 the pen relays or something where there's this like culture around it and you go because you're going to run in it and you get to be there uh, except it's more social i guess even than that but um so the, i mean i went with two groups right i went with uh, my video improv group and a reunion show for a live action improv group and uh we we had a large contingent of boston improvisers that went down there and so um there's you know three venues and full days of programming in in improv in particular like performing at late hours is kind of the norm you know shows that go on for long periods of time some fe- like some festivals are marathons some festivals end at a certain hour and there's usually you know you go to see your shows then there's also opportunities for workshops right and one of the things that's kind of cool about um at least this my the form of comedy that I do is that uh it's very driven by wanting to learn how to do it so you know the business model of the theaters that succeed is generally anchored in teaching people the form, not necessarily getting people to watch the shows, right? And it's sort of like a it's like it's like a culture that shares its knowledge and that develops like adherence and then kind of self perpetuates in that way. Um, so there's a lot, you know, there's workshops to go to, there's shows to go see. You get like a performer pass to get you access to X number of things. There's usually some sort of headliner who you either have to pay a little bit of extra for uh like you don't get on a ticket to see them or they kind of are like the big show of the day the, the headliner of this uh festival was emo phillips um or at least of this particular week of the festival and and the north carolina comedy arts festival does like a stand-up week and a and a sketch week and an improv week so it's a very long festival they used to call themselves the biggest comedy festival in the country i don't think they can call themselves that anymore because they, they cut one of their weeks out which was like video and film uh and i think other festivals are making plays for that but the main thing is that like you, you know everybody was staying in a hotel that was affiliated with the festival so it's like a convention right it's it's a lot like going to like a you know a pax or a dragon con it's not quite as big right and people are staying in hotels and hanging out with each other and doing events but you're also there to perform and to be part of the, the scene, right? Um, to learn things and to become personally involved. 
Uh, so yeah, so I mean, it's, it's fun. It's exhausting. It, you know, wears on you, uh, because it's sort of nonstop for however many days for me, it was Thursday through Sunday. Uh, and I didn't get much sleep. I actually had a five hour energy for the first time and it kept me up for 11 hours. Uh, I didn't go to sleep at all. I'm not going to be touching one of those for a while. I have enough vim and vigor without having to, you know, inject that sort of thing into my gullet. Um, but yeah, I mean, the main thing is that like, there are also, particular sorts of schools that are represented by particular sorts of people and there's particular kind of high status performers who might sort of teach particular workshops and and, and that kind of all speaks to what it is you're trying to do so for me it feels like there's the, the point where you finish your shows and you're finally free right and, and you're done with your work and you get to, to party but it's also a uh, it's also kind of a vacation to get away from the things that you do to make money during the course of your day right um, and it's going to be different than a festival where the people who are doing it are pros, right? This is a festival dominated by amateurs, um, by people who do it for the love, uh, which I think is the best reason to do something um, other than, you know, self-preservation or like, you know, as a sequel to something that was financially successful. <laughs> but, uh, but I don't know, does that kind of address your questions? It does. And, and so- I, I, I have more questions based on what, you, what you've said now. Yeah. I, I had a roommate in college who stayed on uh, at school to do uh, a master's degree in guitar performance. He got a, okay. a, an MM, a master of music, and he described yep. the, um, you know, the professional arts degree, uh, which you know, everyone knows I am now partaking of a professional arts degree. Uh, right? But he, at, at the time, he described it to me as this. Uh, well, the whole thing's a racket. You, know, you have these conservatories, and you graduate people who are credentialed to do nothing else but teach in conservatories and yeah. to sort of teach the next generation of people. Now, he was yeah. a classical guitarist, uh, and an excellent classical guitarist but how many classical guitarists really can there be in the culture and he said to me you know one day like you know matt he said to me matt he says he says matt um a home run what he says (laughs) a home run for me uh career-wise would be one day to make some recording that someone buys and plays in the morning while they're making their coffee because it's inoffensive You know, and um, and uh, and like an unimaginable degree of career success would be is if it were were sold at Starbucks. Right, right, right. And that that like that's it struck me that he had very realistic, a realistic view of the market that he that uh, he was entering. Um, and indeed, he does. I, I guess my friend does a lot of teaching now of of classical guitar. Uh Maybe it, maybe it would be different, you know, to teach like rock and roll guitar playing or something. But um, what? Tell tell me more about the business model of theaters. I understand that they you teach the form, uh, you develop adherence. But what do people what do people get out of it? Um, that is to say, what is the meaning of performance if it's if you kind of sever the crucial tie between? The real point of this is to do it in front of a paying audience who, uh, who you know, accepts it as entertainment. Right. I mean, I guess, well, I perform in front of audiences that keep my institution going. I, I mean, I guess, yeah, the, the classes are what pays the bills. But, I mean, I'm not a professional comedian in the sense that it's not what I do for a living. But I do, you know, perform in front of a paying audience uh, that helps support the theater that I work with. Um, so you're what do people a, get yeah, out but of you're it? A, yeah, but you've gone pretty far in it. I mean, to say that you're not a professional, I think, actually begs the question of... Well, what is a professional? Well, yeah, exa- exactly. I mean, you're... Let's call you a, a pro-am comedian or a prosumer comedian. You know You're probably being I mean? too kind, but I appreciate it because I love RC Pro-Am, so that's what I'm going to choose to think about. <laughs> uh, that's a great game. Although Cobra Triangle is awesome. Um, which is the sequel with boats. Boats shooting machine guns. So, um, I mean, part of it is that you do it because... I mean, I'm not sure I understand the question 100%, but I'll, I'll, I'll sort of say what comes to mind. You know, you, you do it because uh, there's some sort of need that it fills, either for you or for the people around you. That's what, you do that's it be- what I'm getting you know? at. Like, there's it, yeah. separated from the, the kind of the instrumental benefit of like doing this gives an audience a good time. It sounds like, it sounds like that this kind of long form improv thing that, that I imagine is what you're talking about um, yeah. has, has a kind of intrinsic benefit to the people who are doing it, uh, and they like it just because they like it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's it's almost like it's almost immaterial whether they get 
a lot of attention for doing it from, you know, people outside their immediate circle of friends. Uh, but that the kind of, you know, that they, they develop a new kind of good. They develop a, a sense for virtuosity in this particular uh, environment. I do and- love virtuosity with Russell Crowe and Russell Washington. <laughs> <laughs> and that... Um, you know, and that kind of trying to attain and then exercise that virtuosity is uh, is a um, uh, good thing in itself. Yeah, I, I guess that that's definitely you know people want to be good at things and and attaining the good being you know the, the goodness added is something to aspire to. Um, I think that the social aspect of it is important, and I think that okay, so so let's talk about the arts for a second, and we can extend this to talk about movies too, right? Because people, this is great. We can even spin in the Oscars a little bit because people complain that uh, the Oscars and Hollywood is morally bankrupt, and the Oscars doesn't reward good movies, right? And we're talking about how well you make different movies for different reasons, right? And so the, one of the reasons why you would make art is to make a living, right? And it's a way you can make a living. That's why Shakespeare made it. Shakespeare made art because it's how he made his living. It's how he survived. Sure. Right. Um, and I mean, I'm sure he had his other reasons, but that was important for him. And so you make art that tries to sell that you think people will enjoy because they're your customers and it's your profession and that's what you do. You can make art to aggrandize and support a social vision, right? Which can either mean being like the portrait artist for a Medici, right? Or being like the sort of graffiti artist who's trying to up in the social order. Like there's some sort of political interest that provides value, right, in exchange for you doing your art. Now that value may be monetary because you're paid by these people to do it or it might be you know in terms of power and influence or advancing a cause that you want to advance that for you has like a benefit that's tangible right or at least even if it's intangible it's meaningful so so you make you make art because you are a professional and you're selling it to people you make art because you're trying to advance an agenda and art is despite it not being the intrinsic purpose of art like that's something that art can do like or you can make art um because you you love to do it that's like the rilke angle right it's like if you could do anything else that's the first part of Letters to a Young Poet by Rainer Marie Rilke, which if you haven't read, you should check out. You know, if you could do anything else at all, you should do it because this work is thankless. And if you want to do it, it's difficult and it's painful. Um, but if you need to do it, then you will do it, and that is what's going to happen. And so there, you do it for the love right, of the art itself. You can do that. So you can do it for, for money. You can do it for power. You can do it for the love. Um, but I think you can also do it kind of for the family. Right. Like you also kind of do it for the community of artists that you're part of. I mean, this is also, I mean, this is where we extend to like the Sean Connery finding Forrester, like to get laid solution, right? Where it's like you do it to fit in, to be cool. Or, you know, even if it's not like that, to not fit in, to not be cool because that's what you want. Or just to like, you know, distinguish yourself as kind of like a representation of yourself. Be like, you know, make a, you know, I'm wearing a tattoo on my arm because this representation means something to me socially and the way that other people view me is important. Right. And of course, this social mechanism is why you can make money doing it and it's why you can get power doing it. But you can, but the social needs, especially in our kind of alienated society, you know, you can go through the whole bowling alone thing where like social capital has been on decline in America in particular. People don't hang out with each other as much anymore. People rely more on their spouses as their only friends. You know, people, you know, the, the idea, I think the bowling alone thesis is what people bowl just as much, but they don't join leagues. People are more isolated. And the arts provide an important uh, avenue for kind of bridging that gap and connecting people. And then the other thing is that there are extrinsic benefits to being involved in the arts, right? Which is like, it can teach you how to read, you can make you smarter, you know, you learn things. And that's why, and, and I think that there's a correlation, you know, or in the terms of what you're trying to accomplish when you try to share art with a child, right? And this is why I think arts for children is relatively influential in America relative to arts for adults, right? It's like, you know, the kids will do Shakespeare more often than the adults will. You know, you're more likely, you know, you'll see a marching band at a high school and, and no adult will ever pick up a trumpet except for the ones who are professional at it. Um, you know, it's like, uh, because the, it does teach kids things and it's part of learning. Uh, and also because if you have an, ex- an intense experience with it as a, as a youngster, it's proven that that's kind of what makes you stick with it as you get older. So I would sort of enumerate those as kind of like the chief motivations. You know, so it's professional, uh, you know, power and influence, you know, for the love of the thing that you're doing because you have to, um, because of a social angle, right? Because you want to be part of a community that does this and it's a way, it's sort of like your talisman, right? It's like a way that you, you identify yourself. It's part of building your identity um, or an extrinsic, uh, an extrinsic purpose. That's related to like a, a, an instrumental benefit that the arts offer, right? Like, oh, I'm going to be a dancer because I'm going to have nice calves if I'm a dancer. I'm going to go to Zumba class. I'm going to learn how to tango, and I'm going to learn how to tango because it's going to help me meet people, right? And like, that's more social, but it's also kind of like I'm going to do the X because I want Y benefit from it. Uh, and I think that the, the improv community is dominated by people who are doing it because they want to be part of a community, 
Um, and they want to be, they want to be a social, I mean, there are a lot of people who want to be good at it, obviously. I mean, I want to be good at it too, but one of the things that you see in these kinds of, uh, conferences and they don't just have to be comedy conferences or comedy festivals, music festivals, or even like the sort of meetings of philanthropists that support like regional theaters and stuff that's more conventional is it's so affirming to be around like-minded people that are sort of, you know, showing that they care about what you care and that you kind of acknowledge each other and and reach out to each other. And that's really important. And And that's part of what keeps the arts going. Um, it's part of why people talk about movies, right? And you know, people talk about movies because talking about movies is a way to socialize with one another. And, you know, and we talk about movies, yeah, it's like, oh, why do you care about movies so much? Well, it's like the way that my friends and I bond. It's better than talking about my ridiculous dating life or something like that. Well, for, for <laughs> I mean, to be, so. to kind of flip the script, I mean, this is what we do. We take it and we turn it. Um, <laughs> you know. Put the track down, flip it and reverse it. Like looking in a Missy Elliott mirror. It's a dead-on impression. <laughs> anyway, you were saying another another grand dame of the, <laughs> of the classical of the classical stage that you are yep. uh, impersonating tonight. Um, that's why we do overthinking it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's why we do these sites. You know, we're a bunch of we're a bunch of friends who live in in totally different parts of the world. That well of the country, anyway. Um, well, to speak for yourself, I hate you guys. I'm doing it. To get laid. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, how's nice. that? How's that working out for you? Yeah, everybody should watch Finding Forrester and read Letters to a Young Poet at the same time. <laughs> You're the man My now, dog. First ash, first ash go shelf in your darkest moment. Must I write? If the <laughs> if the answer comes back anything other than a clear and resounding yes. Seek employment <laughs> elsewhere <laughs> to get <Awesome>. laid. <laughs> You're okay, a man a now, dog. <laughs> That's um, a tour to Connery Force. And that was a flawless impression, by the way. It was like looking in a Sean Connery mirror. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. I mean, um, I guess people, I mean, I, I left one out, right? Which is also that you aspire to a greater good of the sort of beauty and form and sublimity of art. And you want to say something about society. But I, I don't even include it because it's like, is it, people th- say that they're doing that and they're usually doing one of the other things. You know right. what I mean? That's like the way the critic talks about it. You know, I read, I read uh, last week and I wanted to bring it up in the podcast last week, but we didn't get a chance. Oh, no, I did. The, um, I read a passage from it, actually, this review of the, the anthology of hip hop, which is in my Amazon uh, shopping cart um, that I want to get and read, so, which is a printed collection of hip hop lyrics, uh, which is, of course, a ridiculous undertaking because rap lyrics are not meant to be read on a page. Um, right. And, and a Which lot makes of- it the last vestige of poetry, right? Like of, of spoken poetry, right? And spoken word. Not the last vestige, but one of the most important well yeah one of the yeah one of the one of the only important last vestiges i mean like you know i guess the poetry slam movement is related to hip hop in a in a certain way but um it's a lot less cool <laughs> or i don't know well, a lot less commercially the, the poetry slam stuff is like long form improv right you're part of a community i actually know some uh long form improvisers who also do poetry slam stuff they're very similar um, you know, you do it to be like you go to a slam conference or convention or, or competition, and most of the people there have done slam at some point or another, right? It's like a it's like an active participatory craft. Um, but anyway, you were saying. Well, and I think the passage that I read from this review last week compared the the culture of uh, of kind of rival MCs as it was kind of related in this uh, particular selection uh, in the anthology to the culture of um, warriors in the Iliad in that they, they value kind of acts of bravery, uh, a certain kind of masculinity, a certain kind of machismo, um, competitiveness with one another, uh, you know, and, <laughs> and make it sort of easy to objectify women. Um, but, but that this, this sort of, this kind of relentless self-promotion, uh, gets tiresome because the only kind of gymnastics of, you know, of trope, uh, available to you are the, the kind of gymnastics of self aggrandizement, you know, like what, what better metaphors can you find to, you know, um, 
compare yourself favorably with the sucka MCs who got no flow and you know et cetera et cetera et cetera. Uh, you know what I mean? You're like an atomic bomb that blows away all the other MCs. You're like a machine gun that blows. You know, I mean, uh, you're like the I don't know the 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 tree standing tall above all the. I don't know. That's that's not really hip hop. But um, the the claim made by this by this review is that sort of art in the way that we think of art art as a kind of freestanding. Um, uh, a sort of freestanding interest that we all participate in and kind of move forward only happens when that competitive drive is is sublimated and turned inward uh, towards a um, uh, towards aims that are not social. You know what I mean? Uh, towards aims that have to do with uh, that become something like. Uh, creating beauty, you know what I mean? Or creating formal perfection of some kind. Um, and that, you know, while, while you're kind of trapped in boasting or while you're kind of trapped in the social aspects of, uh, of art making, you're actually kind of missing, you're missing the thing that makes it sort of beautiful. Now, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't, I don't buy that 100%. Uh, I don't buy that 100% because I think it actually – I think it leaves out a lot of the social aspects of, of how the art that we call beautiful is made. Uh, mm. It sort of begs the question of uh, – presumably Homer was – you know, once... Or it raises the question, right? No, it it it, oh, it, it begs it. Yeah, no, it begs the question oh, okay. of the the um the conditions under which the art is produced. Oh, okay, okay. You know okay. what I mean? I it raises a lot of questions too, but that but that's the one that that I think it begs, or at least the one that occurs that it occurs to me that it begs. You know, presumably there were a lot of bards. You know what I mean? Trolling around ancient Greece. Uh, you know, coming in trying to you know I don't know get a get a pull at the wine skin, and mm-hmm. you know uh, and um, there must have been a, a kind of uh, competition am, uh, among them, but you know, I don't know the the idea that that art that's done for for um, the intrinsic versus instrumental benefits. I mean, we I, I guess we acknowledge a distinction between that, and maybe that's the maybe that's the difference. Maybe that's one kind of difference that we could call a difference between amateur and professional. Mm-hmm. For me to poop on. <laughs> Very nice. That was a dead-on impression. It's like looking in a triumphant self-comet dog mirror. <laughs> solid, solid, I, solid. Maybe we're just digging ourselves into a um, digging ourselves into a uh, thing. So you want to make up porn titles for all the uh, for all the best picture <laughs> nominees? But you mean like like the King's Speech with sexual undertones? <laughs> uh, uh, I'll start. Winter's Bone. <laughs> and scene. <laughs> no, no. Uh, let's find, 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 find. So we're looking at the best picture nominees. How about 127 hours? <laughs> that is exhausting. How is that going to be? Po- that is so tiring. 27 hours of sexual intercourse. It's exactly. Actually, it's a. It's an Andy Warhol like movie. Uh, you know where the sun goes up and the sun goes down. Mm. Um, I don't want to be a social too network of sexual intercourse. <laughs> yeah. True grit to be washed off before engaging in coitus, because otherwise it chafes. Uh, Toy Story that's three. Over, Toy Story three. That's that's pretty much it. Okay. <laughs> um, oh, Lord. The, the, the I, I, we've really been laying our hearts on the line. You know, we're really like talking about this stuff, like digging pretty deep for it. Um, I don't know, Mark. Does any of this sort of spark anything with you? What porn titles? Yeah, exactly. It sparks all no. sorts of things. <laughs> You play in bands, Mark. You, I mean, you make music in a lot of contexts. Uh, you know, not all of them the record industry, right? Well, well, none of it in the record industry. Like, right. all of it just for the... You're sort of asking, like, you know, of all those different theories that you're spinning around, like, like what, you know, what are those, which one of those applies to me? What drives that? Besides to get laid, of course, which is a given. <laughs> right, of course. Um, of course. I mean, I'll, I'll try my best. I mean, I was, I was struggling a little bit to sort of to follow all that, me being of such a feeble mind. Um, but, uh, Matt, what you said earlier, it was really interesting about sort of the boasting and then taking what that boasting would be, you know, normally in a social activity and then turning that inward to create something that is not a social thing. Like I, I buy that and like, 
I think you can. The idea, the idea, be, the idea being that the struggle of person against person becomes a kind of inward struggle for for greater achievement uh, within oneself. You know what I mean? Sure, sure. I, and I, I, I think I largely agree with that in terms of like that drive for achievement and the, sort of the struggle to achieve more than the others. And that's that. You, I can see that being one of the things that drives me to create music. But you know, I guess. Now that you describe it that way, it makes a little more sense because I was thinking it's like not really quite an anti-social type of thing because so much of the music that I create is with people and is therefore is by definition a social thing, right? Yeah, but, but I guess what you're referring to more is like the solo act of like ripping a shredding guitar solo, right? That is oh, like sure. taking that or, impression and then like turning that inward to like – Or Mark, like presumably you put in, you know, hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of, of practice hours, you know what I mean, alone in a room in order to be able to step out on stage. And like, you know, make no mistake, I am not a, I am not a champion of the, of the person, you know, sitting alone making beautiful things in, in isolation. At a certain point, you have to step into the octagon and figure out how good you actually are at the thing that you right. think you're good at but um uh, just to mix three or four metaphors in there but uh <laughs> you know, but like uh you've done a lot of hours in the gym you know what i mean you've done a lot of hours no no i haven't no, no just to be clear i haven't no. <laughs> you've you've ridden over the brooklyn bridge a lot of times on your bicycle okay uh, that's true yes no uh you know you've put you uh, specifically to talk about you mark like have put in a lot of hours uh you know playing guitar right like uh, mm-hmm. uh that's alone and that like it's you know it's it's you get to mile what 17 of the marathon you know in your practice session and uh it's kind of like well i could quit or i could push on to a greater level of achievement and that's you know that's the kind of struggle that that i'm talking about that is the kind of sublimated inward directed uh uh you know a struggle of perfection of craft that allows you to then kind of step out uh on stage into the octagon uh in front of the fans Hmm. You know, since you put it that way, um, sort of that uh, that struggle and that that sort of constant drive to to perfect, and you're 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 giving me too much credit, honestly, because uh, that describes me up to a certain point of my development of musical skills, and and after a while, like I can't say that uh, definitely like like right now, I don't practice nearly as much. I practice not nearly as much as I used to. And it's not quite this sort of like drive for perfection that you're talking about. Like at some point I got good enough basically to step out of the octagon and know that I could like play a pretty competent solo. Maybe not like the best solo that I could possibly play, but do a pretty damn good job of it and, and satisfy people. And I, uh, and then, you and, got, and I then you got leveled by an absolutely vicious front snap kick that uh, you know, <laughs> knocked you to the floor. Um, well, that, that happened. And, and, and then, that, that taught you not to play the guitar in the octagon. Right. So, I mean, I guess if we're talking about sort of like all these different calculations that we make in terms of why we create art and why we practice and that sort of thing, um, you know, sure. Like, so at a certain point, like, you know, huge amounts of time that that I could have spent doing other things was totally worth it to sink into learning how to play the guitar. Um, and at some point, it didn't anymore. And it's not to say that I don't play anymore or still don't enjoy it. It's just that that calculus has changed and, you know, that... I'm having a tough time putting this into words, but that that sort of struggle that you talk about, like perhaps as I mature into a uh, you know a responsible adult who is secure in his place in the world, that that need to struggle and to prove yourself uh, isn't quite there anymore. I don't know. Well, yeah, I guess that need to struggle it sort of gets. Um... It's so, yeah, it sort of gets matured out of you, doesn't it? Like, uh... well, also yeah. eventually, oh, you, eventually you do get laid. Also, that no, no, that's, that's, anymore. All seriousness, that's kind of where I was going with this, and yeah. um, I think we've talked about this in various forms uh, on the podcast and on the site. This whole idea of peaking early and like you know, um, peak rock or peak um, peak Fifty Cent, I don't know, peak peak, peak Britney Spears, whatever you want to want to call it. It's like you know, there's a like John Parrish talks about this like iron law of stardom. You know, the sort of three year. Uh, you know, the attention span and the more sort of like the, you know, in the context of a cultural zeitgeist. But what I've heard other people talk about it is that, you know, so much cultural achievement is driven by young, young men and women because that's when they're trying to get laid. And that's what they really put themselves out there and where they take risks. Um, this is when like Paul McCartney was at the peak of his songwriting, um, songwriting career. This is when, you know, you can say that, uh, you know, Steve Jobs and Bill Gates made like the, took the hugest, the largest risks that, uh, you know, led them on to uh, the future success. 
Yeah, sure. Well, no guts, no glory, right? Right. Yeah, but the the idea is that it's a young man's that it's that innovation is a young man's game in a way. Uh, I mean, I guess it's a, young, kind of it's a young person's game, and I, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure I buy that. I mean, like Steve Jobs seemed to have a couple of uh, have have like a second and third act in him. Uh, but sorry, Pete, I I cut you off. Oh no, it's fine. I, I I disagree that innovation is a young man's game. I I think, of course, the myth of innovation is a young man's game. This idea that you're going to come up with a bold new idea that's going to change everything. But most innovation is the product of like long t- long term painstaking work, trying everything else. I mean, you know, Thomas Edison wasn't you know was still working after on stuff for a while. I want to find out when did Thomas Edison make the light bulb. Um, how old was he? And I think because because Thomas Edison, you know, he would always say, right, like. You know, it's not that I. It's that I. I found what a hundred ways to not make a light bulb, right? I mean, sure. he was uh, like he would you know test everything. I remember when because I'm from New Jersey and and Edison's labs were in New Jersey and I went to visit them on a school trip and they would show us like the elephant skin that Thomas Edison tried to make a light bulb out of, right? And it's like well because he was trying and and it wasn't the kind of mark of somebody who's like a rock star. It's somebody who is trying to. Uh, um, you know, just somebody who's trying to do everything and be exhaustive. And, and a lot of that, that's not necessarily something that you need to be young to be able to do. You need to have a reason. You need to be hungry, I guess. Um, but not everybody, who, I mean, young, old people can be pretty ambitious. Um, so. Sure. Yeah. Uh, you need to, I mean, you need to have a, you need to have a hunger. Uh, I get, you know, I mean, you need to, you need to have a hunger for it. And I guess round right about the time that men and women get themselves laid, uh, you know, you can you can um, sort of let a lot of those like desirable secondary sex characteristics go. Uh, start drinking a lot of beer from Trader Joe's and uh, get yourself a healthy gut going because you know <laughs> you, you don't have to attract a mate anymore. Uh, well, the other thing to think about is that. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, oh gosh, what was I going to say? Ah, uh, uh, never mind. I'm I'm fried a little bit. Oh, I. I remember what it was is that innovation doesn't necessarily mean coming up with a new thing a lot of the time it just means finding the right moment to repurpose something that already exists right um like you sure. can come up like the atari jaguar <laughs> you know it wasn't its moment right um you know being being new was not a benefit to it necessarily um right. yeah, yeah at that yeah. yeah at that time or to you know to say say the old thing for a new you know for a new audience um yeah. there's this guy named kirby uh I think his last name is Ferguson, and he does a video podcast that I've admired for a long time called uh, Goodie Bag. I think it's at goodiebag.tv, and um, and uh, there he's in the middle of a series now called Everything Is a Remix. And uh, you know he's talking. He was talking about the the original Star Wars movies and their their debts to um, a lot of like, the, you know, the serials, the film serials of the thirties and forties and Buck Rogers and that kind of thing. Mm. Um, you know, if you just find the the right time to say the, um, to say the new thing over again, uh, you can, um, I don't know, you can often make a, make an impression mm. and get laid and get laid. Sorry, I'm. I do my. This is me doing my underthinking thing. I'm just like. Oh, I think Edison was like 45 when he patented the the telegraph that he made. You're the man now, dog. You're the man <laughs> now, Thomas Edison. <laughs> well, hey, can, um, I, can, can I? Can I? Um, uh, sort of. I don't know if we're, if we're starting to wrap now, but um, I do have an interesting piece of Oscar trivia that I've sort of. I think I just. Unearthed. Oh right, this is the Oscar show. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so should I should I uh, lay it on you? Yeah, go for it. Okay, uh, this actually probably isn't that um, that much of a revelation, but I found it interesting all the same. So I started clicking around on Wikipedia to look at the uh, list of Best Picture nominees over the past uh, let's see six six years, including uh, the, this one, the current eighty third Academy Awards. And what I found out is that you have to go all the way back to the uh, to the seventy eighth Academy Awards of two thousand and five, or the, rather covering 2005, which was held in 2006, to uh, find a year in which um, the, of the nominees for Best Picture, none of them were set during World War II. You me that? In other words, like this year, right, um, it's a bit of a stretch, but the King's Speech does count because, you know, at the end of it, obviously, Britain is entering World War II. Um, year before that, um, Inglorious Bastards. Year before right. that, um, The Reader. Year before that, um, 
Atonement, right? At the end of that movie, like he goes yep. off to World War well, II. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Year before that, that World uh, War Two or is that World War One? That's that's World War Two. Because there was yeah, uh, uh, the year before that, Letters Dunkirk, from Iwo Jima, yeah. and then um, the seventy eighth Academy Awards for movies of two thousand and five. Um, nothing. Crash, Brokeback Mountain, Capote, Good Night, Good Luck, and Munich, which is actually kind of like treading a little bit in that territory because it's like the whole you know Jewish thing, Palestinians, blah blah blah, or not. I don't know. Were they, were they Palestinian terrorists that killed the the Jews at the Munich Olympics? But anyway, nothing not, clearly did not happen during uh, known as World War II. Right. So, That's I mean, not, not shocking, right? I mean, newsflash, World War II makes for uh, good prestige pictures, right? Mm-hmm. We should make one. We'll make a, a video of it. It'll be great. It'll be. It'll yeah, take Blinky's place. Got that, Blinky's got that screenplay, um, which kind of was co-opted, I guess, by Inglorious Bastards about the team that uh, once. Uh, hey, uh, hey, Mark. Only Nazis bring up things like that. Godwin's Law. Boom. Podcast oh. over. I will also say that, like, it there are a lot doesn't... of improv scenes about World War Two. Like, there are a lot of improv scenes. You watch improv Wait, for seriously? a while. Oh yeah, it's very common to see people like like a lot of war scenes are very clearly modeled over like World War Two style war. Right where you're like kind of on your belly crawling down the trench, um, and there's like the planes overhead that are bombing, and you've got your like you know you got your M1 or whatever. Uh, you know what? I'm, someone's gonna well actually hardcore there. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna preemptively well actually them and be like, yeah, you know you're in World War II and you're flying your F-22 Raptor, and uh, you shoot your lightning, <laughs> your, your Tesla lightning cannon uh, at, at the at the Vichy French that you're fighting at the Battle of Iwo Jima. And if you have uh, to, uh, you know, if you have to eject and you know parachute down to the ground, at least you have your lightsaber. Uh, exactly. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a elegant weapon from a more civilized age. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, uh, if you are an elegant weapon uh, from a more civilized <laughs> age or would like to wield one in a discussion of any of the things that we've talked about, the Academy Awards, <laughs> tangentially, The Legend of Zelda, Comedy Improv, Rilke's Letters to a Young Poet, Poetry Slams, uh, The Sublimation of uh, the Competitive Drive into the Creation of Beauty, um, The Medici. Why don't you come by? Uh, why don't you come by the site and leave a uh, leave a comment on the uh, show notes for this episode? Uh, you can also rate the show on iTunes. We would uh, we would really appreciate that. Um, we also uh, pretty soon over the next couple of weeks, I think we're going to have some exciting. Uh, we're going to have some exciting announcements about more audio entertainment available on the site. Um, but until then, uh, just just come back, hang out on the site. What site, you ask? Why? It's www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. We cannot know his mighty head. With eyes like ripening fruit. Chuck it, Trebek. <laughs> that was from Rilke's poetry. Never mind. <laughs>